Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 39. Verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Burkett notes. From the 13th verse to the 30th, the Pharisees have eight several woes denounced against them by our Savior. The first is for perverting the scriptures and keeping the true sense and knowledge of them from the people. This St. Matthew calls the shutting up of the kingdom of heaven against men. St. Luke calls it a taking away the key of knowledge from men, which is an allusion to a known custom among the Jews in admission of their doctors. For those that had authority given to them to interpret the law and the prophets were solemnly admitted into that office by delivering them a key and a table book. So that by the key of knowledge is meant the interpretation and understanding of the scriptures. And by taking away the key of knowledge is signified, first, that they arrogate to themselves alone the understanding of the scriptures. Secondly, that they keep the true knowledge of the scriptures from the people, especially the prophecies which concern the Messiah. And so they hindered men from embracing our Savior's doctrine, who were otherwise well enough disposed for it. Learn hence, one, that the knowledge of the Holy Scriptures is absolutely and indispensably necessary in order to salvation. This our Savior calls the key, which lets men into the kingdom of heaven. Learn, too, that great is the guilt and inexcusable the fault of those who deprive the people of the knowledge of the scriptures. They shut the kingdom of heaven against men, and do what in them lies to hinder their eternal salvation. Men may miscarry with their knowledge, but they are sure to perish for want of knowledge. Verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a penance make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. Burkett notes, The second woe denounced against the Pharisees is for their gross hypocrisy and coloring over their covetousness with the pretense of religion, making long prayers in the temple and synagogues for widows, and thereupon persuading them to give bountifully to the Corban, or the common treasury of the temple, some part of which was employed for their maintenance. Learn one, It is no new thing for designing hypocrites to cover the foulest transgressions with the cloak of religion. The Pharisees made long prayers a cover for their covetousness. Two, that to make use of religion and policy for worldly advantage's sake is the way to be damned with a vengeance for religion's sake. Woe unto you, scribes, etc. Verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Burkett notes, The next woe denounced is for their false-ended zeal and earnestness in proselytizing heathens to the Jewish religion, not with a pious intention to save them, but to serve themselves upon them, to have their consciences and purses under their power. And when you have poisoned them, says our Savior, by your corrupt doctrine, and hardened them in a course of sin by your wicked example, they are more the children of hell than before you practiced upon them. Learn one. Great is the diligence and infatigable the industry which false teachers use in gaining prostitutes to their opinion and party. 
they compass sea and land to make for one proselyte. Two, that such as are proselytized to error are oftentimes faster riveted in their false opinion than their teachers themselves. They are made twofold more the children of hell than yourselves. Verses 16 through 22. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for where is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gifts that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Burkett notes, The fourth woe which our Savior denounces against the Pharisees is for their false and erroneous doctrine concerning oaths. 1. They taught men to swear by the creatures. 2. They taught that some oaths made by the creatures were obligatory and binding, others not. Particularly, they affirm, that if a man swears by the temple or the altar, it is nothing. That is, he was not bound by such an oath. But if a man swear by the gold of the temple and the altar, that is, by the gifts offered to the Corban or the treasury of the temple, and by the sacrifices and oblations on the altar, such an oath, they affirmed, was binding, because it was for their profit that the gifts on the altar and the gold brought into the treasury should be accounted most holy, seeing that that would encourage the people to be more ready to contribute and offer. This horrid hypocrisy and covetousness our blessed Savior here sharply reproves, and shows that oaths made by the creatures, though unlawful, yet being once made, did oblige, as if the parties had sworn by God himself. For he that swears by the temple, swears by it and him that dwelt therein. Learn, one, that swearing by the creatures is no new sin, but as old as the Pharisee. Two, that swearing by the creatures is a great profanation of the name of God, and a mighty provocation to him. Three, that this notwithstanding, if the matter of such oaths be not sinful, they are obligatory and binding. He that sweareth by the creatures sweareth indeed by the God of the creatures. For, says our Savior, he that sweareth by the heavens sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereupon. Verses 23 and 24. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the others undone, ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Burkett notes, The next woe denounced is for the Pharisees' ostentation of a precise keeping of the law in smaller matters and neglecting weightier duties. They paid tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, but at the same time omitted judgment, mercy, and faith. That is, just dealing with men, charity towards the poor, and faithfulness in their promises and covenants one with another. This, says our Savior, is to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, a proverbial expression intimating that some persons pretend great niceness and scrupulosity, 
about small matters, and none or but little about duties of the greatest moment. Hence note, one, that hypocrites lay the greatest stress upon the least matters in religion, and place holiness most in those things where God places it least, ye tithe, mint, etc., but neglect the weightier matters of the law. This is indeed the bane of all religion and true piety, to prefer ritual and human institutions before divine commands and the practice of natural religion. Thus to do is a certain sign of gross hypocrisy. Observe, too, that although some duties are of greater moment than others, yet a good man will omit none, but perform every duty, the least as well as the greatest, in obedience to the command of God. These things ought ye to have done, and not to leave the others undone. Verses 25 and 26. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Burkett notes, Our Savior doth not here condemn their legal or traditional washing of pots or cups or any external decency and cleanliness in conversation, but his design is to show them the vanity of the outward purity without the inward sanctity, and to convince them of the necessity of cleaning the heart in order to the purifying and reforming the life. Plainly intimating, one, that men's lives could not be so bad if their hearts were not worse, all the obliquity of their lives proceeding from the impurity of their hearts and natures. Two, that a holy heart will be accompanied with a holy life. A man may be outwardly pure and yet inwardly filthy, but he that has a pure heart will live a pure and holy life. Cleanse that which is within the cup, and the outside may be clean also. Verses 27 and 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto white sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and inequity. Burkett notes, Here we have a woe denounced against the Pharisees for cheating and deceiving the people with an outward show and external appearance of piety and religion. Their lives were seemingly very religious, but their hearts were full of hypocrisy and all impurity, like sepulchres painted without and full of rottenness within. Whence learn that the great design of hypocrisy is to cheat the world with a vain and empty show of piety, the ambition of the hypocrite to be thought good, not to be so. He is the world's saint, not God's. Verses 29 through 33. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophet and garnish the sepulcher of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up, then, the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Burkett notes, This is the eighth woe denounced by our blessed Savior against the Pharisees for their grand hypocrisy, and pretending great honor to the saints departed, building their tombs, and garnishing their sepulchres, 
and declaring against their fathers impiety, that had they lived in their days, they would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Now their hypocrisy appeared in three particulars. One, in that they continued in their own wickedness and yet recommended the saints departed. They magnify the saints, but multiply their sins, and instead of imitating their virtues, they content themselves with garnishing their sephlicas. Two, in professing great respect to the dead saints, and at the same time persecuting the living. Palpable hypocrisy. And yet, as gross as it is, it prevails to this day. The Church of Rome, who magnify martyrs and canonize saints departed, have yet added to their numbers by shedding their blood. Three, in taking false measures of their love to the saints departed, from their building their tombs and garnishing their sepulchres, whereas the best evidence of our love unto them is the imitating their virtues and cherishing their followers. It is gross hypocrisy to pay respect to the relics of saints and veneration to their images, and at the same time to persecute and afflict their followers. Learn hence, one, that the world has all along loved the dead saints better than the living ones. The dead saints' example, how bright soever, is not so scorching and troublesome at a distance, and he himself no longer stands in other men's light whereas the living saint's example is a cutting reproof to sin and vice. Observe, too, that there is a certain civility in human nature which leads men to a just commendation of the dead and to a due estimation of their worth. The Pharisee here, though they prosecuted the prophets whilst alive, yet had they a mighty veneration for their piety and virtue after they were dead, and thought no honor too great to be done unto them. Note 3 that it is the grossest hypocrisy to pretend to love goodness and yet hate and persecute good men. These hypocritical Pharisees pretended highly to piety and religion, and at the same time killed the prophets and stoned them that were sent unto them. For that the highest honor we can pay to the saints departed is not by raising monuments and building tombs to their memory, but by a careful imitation of their piety and virtue following the holiness of their lives and their patience and constancy at their deaths. Verses 34 through 36. Wherefore, behold, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barariah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Burkett notes, Observe here a prophetical prediction, a severe denunciation. One, a prediction foretelling what cruel usage the apostles should meet from the Jews, killing and crucifying some, scourging and stoning others which accordingly was fulfilled in the crucifying of St. Peter, the scourging of St. Paul, in the stoning of St. Stephen, and killing of St. James. The first planters and propagators of the gospel sealed their doctrine with their blood, and the blood of the martyrs has all along been the seed of the church. Observe, too, a severe denunciation, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from Abel to Zacharias the son of Jehodiah, 2 Chronicles 
2420, who was the last prophet whose murder is related by name in the Old Testament. These words are not to be understood as if the end and intent of Christ's sending the prophets were that the Jews might put them to death and bring their righteous blood upon themselves. This was the consequence and event, indeed, of their sending, but by no means the design and intent of it. Learn one, that raging persecutors have no regard either for the extraordinary mission or imminent sanctity of persons who reprove them for their sins. I send unto you prophets, says our Savior, wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. Two, that as the piety of the persons, so neither can the sanctity of the place discourage and deter bloody prosecutors from their rage and fury against the prophets of God. In the temple itself, in the court of the house of the Lord, even between the porch and the altar, was Zacharias slain that it is a righteous thing with God to punish the children for the impieties of their parents. This is to be understood. 1. Where the children tread in their father's steps and continue their parents' sins, which they do if they do not confess them, abhor them, and be humbled for them. 2. This is to be understood of temporal evils, not of eternal punishments. No man shall for his father's sins lie down in everlasting burnings. Our Father's faith will not let us into heaven, so neither will their impiety shut us into hell. At the day of judgment, every man shall be separately considered according to his deeds. Verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings? and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Burkett notes, Our Lord concludes this chapter with a pathetical lamentation over Jerusalem. His germination or doubling of the word, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, shows the vehemency of Christ's affection towards them and the sincerity of his desires for their salvation. Observe 1. The great kindness and compassion of Christ to the Jews in general, and Jerusalem in particular, set forth by a lively metaphor and similitude, that of a hen gathering her chickens under her wings. As the hen doth tenderly cherish and carefully hide and cover her young from the eyes of destroyer, so would Christ have shrouded and sheltered his people from all those birds of prey, and particularly from the Roman eagle, by which they were at last devoured. Again, as the hen continueth her call to her young ones from morning to night, and holds out her wings for shelter to them all the day long, so did Christ wait for this people's repentance and conversion for more than forty years after they had killed his prophets and murdered himself before they met with a final overthrow. Observe, too, the amazing obstinacy and willfulness of this people in rejecting this grace and favor, this kindness and condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would have gathered ye, but ye would not. Observe, three, the fatal issue of the obstinacy. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Is left, that is, certainly and suddenly will be so. The present tense put for the paulo post futurum 
it denotes both the certainty and nearness of this people's ruin. Learn one, that the ruin and destruction of sinners is wholly chargeable upon themselves, that is, on their own willfulness and obstinacy. I would have gathered you, says Christ, but ye would not. Learn, too, how deplorably and inexcusably they will perish, who perish by their own willfulness under the gospel. Three, that there is no desire like unto God's desire of a people's repentance, no longing like unto God's longing for a people's salvation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thee? When shall it once be? Christ did very seriously desire the conversion of the Jews who continued still in their impenitency and unbelief. And consequently, they whom he so seriously desired to convert might have been converted, but they would not be so. I would have gathered you, but you would not. <laughs> 